Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Coffee and wine. They're a lot alike, but they're also very different. In coffee, we use wine to explain a lot of concepts. And you've probably heard a barista or other coffee person use wine to explain coffee. I know I've done this a lot. I'll use the idea of terroir or the concept that things grow and taste like where they're from to explain how coffee regions differ, how a coffee from Colombia might taste different than a coffee from Ethiopia, for example. I also use things like tasting notes. Maybe this says it tastes like blueberries, but it's like wine, where the tasting notes are just flavor calls and not the thing actually tasting like blueberries. But for years, I've wondered if this comparison which I've lovingly called the wine analogy, has hindered our understanding of coffee. Or perhaps it's that we've focused on the wrong similarities between the two. Marie Cheslick is the founder of Slick Wines, and we connected through Slick Wines' Instagram account. Marie focuses on making wine accessible and fun through short videos that break down common wine questions. And in this conversation, we dig into how to make things that feel kind of hard and esoteric, like wine and coffee, more joyful and approachable. There's also a lot of joy just in this episode, in this conversation. Marie is really, really fun to chat with. There's a ton of Chicago-specific references, and we try to set a challenge to figure out who is the better group of tasters, wine folks or coffee people. Here's Marie. Marie, I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself. Sure. My name is Marie Cheslick. I am the founder and sommelier for my business, Slick Wines. Did you grow up with coffee in your life? Well, (laughs) yes. I went to nursing school in the city of Chicago at University of Illinois in Chicago. And right when I turned 18, I moved to the city from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they didn't tell you how much you need to study for these things when you're in nursing school. So I ended up going to the cafe a lot in this cafe for any of you Chicago stands out there. It's a wormhole in the Wicker mm-hmm. Park neighborhood. And I just remember going there all the time, just feeling like the vibes were very cool and I felt comfortable and I started getting to know the baristas more and they were turning into my friends. And then, so I would go there and study and they were open super early and super late. So I would be there for 
like 10 hours a day hanging out with these people, like <laughs> getting the most out of my $5 coffee. I'm sorry, but that's just, <laughs> that's I, was, I was that person like sitting in the coffee shop for way too long. But I was like, at least as I, as long as I talk to these people and know these people, I feel like that's okay. Um, but they kind of showed me this really fun and great world of coffee that was, yeah, a little bespoke, but definitely very accessible, professional. We got a lot of different kinds of people going in there and just an overall great coffee experience while studying for nursing school in Chicago. I love a career changer just because I am also a career changer. And that's something that I've talked a lot about on the show. Uh, There's this interview with Nigel Price. If you folks are listening and haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it. And he also talks about having this like completely different career path for himself and then having this moment where it's like, oh, this is actually not what I want at all. I want this completely other different thing. And it seems like that's an experience that you had as well. So I was wondering if you could talk about the moment that things kind of switched for you. Yeah. So when I went to nursing school, I felt like it was a very pragmatic thing to do. It's not like my parents shoved it down my throat or anything. I really just wanted a career where I get to talk to people. I have flexibility and that I could make a decent amount of money and live comfortably. Right. So I was studying for my nursing boards exam, I worked in restaurants and that was just a way to sort of get by. I worked as a host in a restaurant called Hub 51. And again, for all the Chicago fans out there, uh, it's pretty much a bro bar in River North neighborhood. So it wasn't necessarily like the clientele like I would normally interact with, but I really loved the job. I love just talking to people. I love even for that brief moment of having an experience with a person and especially being a host at a restaurant, just being the first person that you meet and that first person being really nice and just like there to help you, I felt like was a powerful thing and something I see in a lot of parallels in nursing. And so when I started working as a nurse, it wasn't as pretty and shiny as I thought it was going to be. It ended up being very okay. I was at Northwestern Memorial in Studerville in Chicago. And it was a great job. Uh, I really liked it, but I felt myself thinking about working in restaurants again. I remember working the night shift, usually where you start when you're a new grad in the hospital. And I remember just Googling eater articles and like seeing what the hot new restaurant was and like Googling about places and Anthony Bourdain and different wines and things like that. And I just kept sort of daydreaming at night (laughs) about these sort of things. And eventually I worked at Northwestern for two years and I said, you know, this is something I don't stop thinking about and I owe it to myself just to see what this is like. So let's pursue restaurants in whatever capacity that may be and let's just, let's just go for it. So I started working in a Michelin star restaurant called Elska in the West Loop and that's sort of where my restaurant and wine career began. That's when you said Elska, uh, I also lived in Chicago. A lot of people who listen to the show might know that you say Elska. I'm like, oh, that's like, that's some real shit deal there. (laughs) Like, so how did you, how did you end up at Elska? Like, was that, or did you work at other restaurants kind of in between? Like, how'd you end up there? And how did you start kind of developing your, your wine career? Yeah, I had worked at some restaurants in between um, in full transparency, like you have to pass this nursing boards exam and I notoriously suck at taking exams. So it took me four times in a year and a half to pass. So I kind of was twiddling my thumbs when I after I finished nursing school and before I finished my boards exam. So I ended up working 
um, a few different restaurant jobs. And then so when I got into Elska, it's like, yes, I had restaurant experience, but then I also had this nursing experience. Uh, and then the man I interviewed with, Kyle Davidson, who is a gem and really someone who I consider a mentor and someone who really let me be in that space and be myself and try things. He was just very open about what he needed. And I was very open about what I needed. And I could be honest with him of being like, hey, I don't mind starting as a server here, but I really want to learn about wine. And I had sort of decided on wine because I guess it's this pragmatic part of my brain. Again, the same thing that kind of led me to being a nurse was like, I really liked being a server. I really didn't see anything wrong with being a server. I really enjoyed it, but I felt like that I needed something else. I needed another edge to give myself more value and more hireable. And I didn't grow up with wine. I grew up in Milwaukee, definitely blue collar beer town. But wine seemed like the easiest way to sort of up my resume. And when I started learning more about it, I ended up just really enjoying it. It's almost like being a bartender where you're kind of mixing the back of house, the chef side, and the front of house, which is the people side, right? So this was sort of my way of doing that. And I was just lucky that I had Kyle who let me taste things all the time and let me attend tastings. But I also was very vocal about, again, what I wanted, which I also feel like made his job easier to be like, okay, like, here's Marie. This is who she is. Awesome. This is where she wants to go. Let me take her there. So I think it was just a very good symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it seems very serendipitous. It seems like a lot of things kind of lined up together, which is awesome because that obviously led you kind of down the pathway that you're on now. But at the same time, like, I love that you were able to say, like, I know what I want, or at least I have an idea of what I want. And I'm going to say these things out loud to you. Luckily, you said them to a person who is safe and you could say those things, too. I can see that, like, kind of like going in a different direction for some other people. But I do want to really highlight the idea that, like, you said the things out loud. Like, I'm a big I'm a big again, I'm a big believer in just like say the thing, say the need, because um, you kind of never know who can respond to it. A hundred percent. And I'm, there have been times in my life where I've said what I needed. And yeah, to get a negative response from it, like even sort of shocking when you tell people what you want to do and they say like, how dare you or how stupid, which is absurd. Um, But at the end of the day, I need to just follow my heart and trust my gut. I know that's cheesy, but it's just true. And yeah, hopefully you just get, it's a part of luck too, right? It's like, yes, I knew what I wanted. And I sort of, it's not that I always, always knew what I wanted, but I had an idea and I just needed to roll with it and just see where that took me as opposed to being unsure about something. So I agree. It's a couple of factors there where I did get lucky, but I also knew. Did you have any transformative wine moments early in your career that kind of affirmed this is what I want to do or this is the this is the path that I'm at least meant to be on for right now? I can't say there's a singular moment. People call that the aha moment for wine. I don't know if there's like a similar thing. Yeah. There's a similar thing with coffee. There's an aha moment. There's, I don't love this as, (laughs) as a term, but there's like the God shot moment. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Where you have like a shot of espresso. That's so good that you're like, how did it get so good? And then you kind of like fall down whatever rabbit holes you need (laughs) to fall down. Uh, But God shots a pretty common term. Hilarious. Okay. So it's not called a God shot, but it's called an aha moment, which it gives me a similar feeling of, I don't almost cringe where you're like, "Eh, okay, like is something like that really going to change my life? But it was the it was the joy of the combination of what I was doing, where I was really proud to work where I was working. I felt like I had a, a goal and it was a, an achievable goal, but a challenging goal. And I loved that. I loved that I got to educate people and meet people. And then 
shift my career from talking about diabetes and heart failure to talking about food and wine and culture around that, which is just felt so right when I was working there. And it was a really special time for me. Like people need to experience joy as much as they need someone to be there during a hard time. I feel like they're an equal amount of power, even though people don't always see it that way. I just, after working both, uh, I get enjoyment out of doing both, and, but I get more enjoyment out of working in wine and sharing that experience with people. I had a very similar experience when I was a teacher. I think I got into teaching with kind of this like altruistic idea in my mind that I was making a difference. And perhaps I was a little more myopic about that when when I was in it, because I don't think that I had like the emotional wherewithal to actually say, what do my students need from me? It was very much like, I'm 22 years old and I'm going to change these kids' lives. Not, not like, oh... I need to respond to the situation and actually do some like assessment about what's happening around me. And that's one of the reasons that I left teaching because I just didn't think I had the emotional wherewithal to do that kind of work at that time, at that age, because, you know, uh, but I think you're, you're echoing a lot of those similarities that I started to see as like my career in coffee kind of evolved and shifted is that the way that we impart meaning into people's lives happens all the time and just because like there's no like more important job than another and it happens in different ways so I love I love that you mentioned that I just wanted to highlight that oh yeah I mean real recognizes real I feel like nurses and teachers (laughs) are like you know we're we are in this together it's like that's some real in the trenches kind of work so I feel that I often reflect on how often I think about the lessons I learned as a teacher like I I probably think about the things I learned as a teacher every single day, which is surprising for the fact that I only did it for a year. And it's, that was 12 years ago. And I was wondering, are there lessons in nursing that you take with you to the restaurant or to a virtual class or just even like your everyday work, the content creation that you're making on Instagram and TikTok and all the other apps, every app. (laughs) And And all of them. It really just tells me that life isn't fair for better or for worse, right? However you want to view that. What are we supposed to do? Like, (laughs) how do you possibly navigate that when you know that life is so dramatically unfair? And I view that from now a business perspective in the most interesting way where it's like, I do post a lot of content. I do create a lot of things. I do, I think I work hard, uh, but sometimes people work hard and they don't get the results they want. And like, is that fair? No. Are people on TikTok for half the time that I am and they see more success than I do? Is that fair? No, but it just is, right? So it shouldn't stop you. It shouldn't, you shouldn't look at other people's cup, you know? It's sort of one of those idioms where you just need to set these goals for yourself and then not look at other people all the time. It's like, okay to do it sometimes, but it really just teaches me that none of this is really fair, but you should just do exactly what you want to do. And if it helps people awesome. Um, and if it doesn't, that's also okay. It's a little bit nihilist, I suppose, but I, I mean, find, I find it very yeah. freeing in a way, you know? I do too. I think you're not wrong. And I agree. The nihilism is a little bit freeing. The idea that like, you can really only focus on you. And I certainly feel that too, as somebody who like makes stuff and puts it out there and hopes like fingers crossed that it'll land with somebody. And if it lands with like one or two people, that's fine. Um, it did its job. So right. or even just being like, I'm going to put this out because I think it's good. Like, yeah, I, I put out this great video. I thought it was awesome. Only seven people liked it. Okay, who cares? I'm just going to do the exact same thing tomorrow. Doesn't right. Matter. What inspired you to start Slick Wines? 
I was working this great restaurant job. And then of course it COVID totally ruined it. <laughs> and yep. I found myself jobless only briefly because now I have this nursing plan as a backup, which is a pretty supreme backup plan. <laughs> but uh, I worked as a COVID nurse for a little bit. And during that time, I was like, I can't, I can't be a nurse again forever. Like I can't, I don't want this future for myself. So I need to do wine in a way that feels right. And it feels like that I can interact with people, but it needs to be not associated with the restaurant. It needs to be in a different capacity. So I started Slick as wine, fun and approachable wine education and mostly virtual events because that was the thing that made the most sense of August, 2020. And now most recently it's been turning into content creation and marketing, which I totally did not expect (laughs) to happen, but has sort of just worked out that way. Like, so let's talk about the education part of it, because I think that that's probably the most like visible, like you go to your TikTok or your Instagram, or you look at reels. And it's a lot of you talking about like, how to taste a wine, how to pick a wine, how to pair it with this, how to do that. Like, what were some of the goals that you set for yourself when you were thinking about the educational aspect of this? Because like coffee, like wine is hard. It's hard to understand. <laughs> totally. I think it was maybe much like coffee fighting against this pretension that's always been there. You know, yeah. I think like the, um, the hipster barista memes, you know, like there's just like stereotypes that exist both in coffee and in wine and very much like the sommelier stereotype. You know, it's even like a hard word to say for people. It's like all these French words and it's very easy to feel not relatable to it because it feels like there are so many barriers up. I have been lucky with my career that I I have been sort of and been accepted with open arms. And even Kyle Davidson over at Elska, he was a bartender. He worked at Violet Hour, which is like a great cocktail bar in the city. And so he kind of approached this with this cocktail sort of mindset. So I sort of always had this alternative path, which I'm I think is fabulous and I think was what made wine so approachable for me. And so easy to get into for me. And if I can do that for other people, I feel like that'd be a very powerful thing. Wine is a place where people need to be educated to explore new avenues with it. Like you don't need to be educated to drink it. You can, of course, just like buy a bottle of wine and drink it. And of course, people do that all the time. And I'm totally there for that. But there's a whole nother world and there's a whole nother level of enjoyment. And I think in similar in coffee, a level of like hobbyism to it as well, where like people either want to like just explore something new or they want to be proficient or they want to impress their date or their boss or whatever. Um, And if I can make that as easy as possible for people, uh, I love doing that within Slick. I just think about situations that I always thought about when I was first learning and I just try not to lose that perspective. Like things that I think to my colleagues seem really basic and really one-on-one are the things that people need to hear and need yeah. to hear over and over again. Like it's worth saying more than once. What do you think some of those things are? Just even how to pick a bottle of wine off the shelf. So I really like to push labels for people because it's usually the first thing people see and usually right. what people make their buying decisions off of, right? Whether it's a cute label or it gives you the information. Um, and of course, like a cute label is cute, but doesn't really tell you anything about the wine unless, you know, uh, like when you look on the back label and you see the importer and you go, okay, like the importer, you have to know what an importer is. So then there's another video, right? And it's like, 
what kind of importers, if I like natural wine, what kind of importers would I like? If I'm going to my in-laws house, you know, what am I picking? You know, I think of a lot of situations for people where I felt like it was very intimidating. So whether it's a restaurant, whether it's in a wine shop or gift giving, I find that's very popular too, where people are like, I need to give something (laughs) to my boss um, or whatever. Uh, I try to just re-remember what it felt like to know nothing and help my past self with that. I love that. I love that you mentioned that we need to remember those moments of being a learner ourselves or, you know, we're all, we're all still learners. We're all constantly learning, but going back to those moments where it's like, oh, I didn't know anything about this. What questions would I have had at that moment? What questions did I find frustrating that I didn't know the answers to? What questions did I find it really hard to find information on? Um, I even had just one of those questions come up recently. I was looking up information about what to do with like really old coffee. Like, let's say you find, yeah. let's say you find like a, you know, we've all been there uh, where like you find a bag of coffee that you're like, oh, I forgot I had this. Like, and this is what, like eight months old? Like, how do I brew this? And I found so many conflicting narratives online. And I was like, how do we, how do we not know this? And I think that there's this idea of like, there's knowledge that's assumed that you just kind of pick up or it's passed through experience or passed through I don't know, sommelier to sommelier, barista to barista, but we don't really codify it. And not to say that there's a end-all, be-all way to do things, but we often don't think about like how the information that we're seeking out is going to be information that others are seeking out too. So that's what I love about accounts like yours. It's almost like record keeping in a way, like putting things down and having a record so that people can say like, I have a question about this. Oh, there's an answer somewhere. And maybe this isn't like Again, the end all be all, maybe this opens up more questions, but at least somebody is addressing this question that I have in my head. I think you made a good point about it being a catalog. Cause yeah, I, I even, I go back to look at the content I've made cause <laughs> I am human and I forget these things all the time. Like, what did I post a month ago? Cause I try to post every day. So it's just a lot of stuff that's coming out. People don't know what they want to learn either. And you can tell me if this is something that happens in coffee too, but like, mm-hmm. I will ask my audience, like, what do you want to learn? And that's kind of like the worst question to ask people sometimes because people freeze yeah. up. People are like, oh, well, uh, I, I don't know, like whatever, whatever you want. So it's like, okay. So it's like I'm creating a lesson plan and teaching it at the same time. So <laughs> you're really hitting all the notes for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it, it took some getting used to. And usually these things just come to mind, especially when I have I still do events and I find that those are the most helpful for like Q&A at the end of like the common questions that people ask. Things like, I don't have a wine fridge. How do I store my wine? Things like that. Like doing these classes again and meeting these people again and having this time at the end of each class to like just hang out with them after I teach about whatever they wanted to learn about. And then that's when all the real questions come out. When people have been drinking a little bit, people are a little more comfortable with you. And I go, oh, yeah, by the way, what's your favorite glassware? You know, like I kind of get the same 20 questions. And so I'll definitely make content based on that as well. Yeah, there's something to be said about being in front of people and having at least a little bit of time to get familiar with your surroundings, get comfortable with the person kind of leading the conversation. I imagine conversations look very different minute one to like minute 60 if you're doing like an hour long presentation. Um, for me, I used to lead uh, what we we call them cuppings. So right will do like tastings of just like different cups of coffee. And I used to lead one every single Friday. And 
I think the most powerful thing for me to witness other people do is just to taste different coffees side by side, which we don't do a lot of. And it's the same kind of in wine too. It's not like you're ordering three glasses of wine to have like next to each other. The only time you're really tasting comparatively is in this kind of setting. And I wonder if that's been like powerful for you too. Dude, like a hundred percent. I, and I love that's the connection that you've made with that too. Cause I see that all the time and consumers also recognize that I've taught classes where we've tasted three Sauvignon Blancs, three of the same grapes. What is this one? What is this one? What is this one? People are interesting in that they think they know what they want, but they probably don't. And I'm exactly the same way, right? Like this is a very human <laughs> uh, attribute where like you think you like a Chardonnay or you think you don't like a Chardonnay more likely. And then you try one, you don't know what this is, but we just pour it in a glass and we assess it together. Uh, it's a really powerful thing. Uh, and I think people find that like you said, to be a very powerful thing. I think it's a lot of fun. I worked at a wine store for like 20 minutes, <laughs> if that. Um, it, it, I, I only worked there like on shifts where they they called me in and they were like, we need someone to like help us put bottles on on shelves. Uh, and I was like, cool, great. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. <laughs> like, I can do that. I could do that. And one of the games that we would play at the wine store when it was kind of slow is that I would pick a bottle of wine for one of the owners and I wouldn't tell him what the bottle was. And then he had to ask questions to try to figure out what the bottle is. And he got it right every single time, but it took him hours, (laughs) hours. It was great though. He, but like we, you know, we'd, we'd be kind of like our regular work day. We'd pour it. He'd like look at the color and kind of make like an assessment. He's like, I think it's from this region of the world. And then he'd stop. And then, (laughs) and then he'd come back to it and he'd be like, okay, I think it's from this region of the world. And I also think it's from this country specifically and then stop and then like kind of keep tasting the wine as the day went on. And it was really interesting for me to witness him ask questions and be like, this is how you're making assessments. And I think just like the process of like, it sounds intimidating to say testing ourselves, but it is like testing ourselves, like doing an experiment, like changing a variable. I will like die on this hill. Coffee is like the coolest science experiment I think you can do because you can change a variable and like that you have like a totally new like set of of things to try. But wine seems to invite that too. Maybe not in the same way where you can like brew a cup of coffee and then brew another one a little bit differently right next to you. But the idea that like it's just like one one like experiment that you can just kind of play with and see like where like different variables kind of lead you. Do you have you ever thought about getting into wine like as a barista? I think that I'm just okay. So I'm this is my PSA right now. I'm going to say <laughs> it for everybody. I think baristas are the best tasters that exist. Ooh, those are fighting words. That's I know. I know it. I'm exciting. <laughs> uh, but I think I think if you okay, so if you go to a new city for example, I would not ask a restaurant person where to go eat. I would ask a barista. Um, just wow. because baristas, I yeah, I'm, I'm going out there, number one. <laughs> um, but because like we spend so much time tasting and manipulating variables to taste. So if I get to the cafe in the morning, I'm tasting espresso, I'm making changes, I'm constantly tasting over and over and over. And I have absolute control over like what's actually happening in front of me. Not absolute control. Like I don't control the beans or whatever. Like I'm getting a roasted product delivered to me. But I think baristas are also seeking out those experiences at other places. So when I was living, I lived in Oakland, California for a while Mm -hmm. and I worked at a coffee shop, um, kind of in my neighborhood. And there's this wine store that's like very well known. It's called Ordinaire and, prob- and you've yeah, probably heard of it. Sure. 
the only people I would see there are baristas. <laughs> I would see all my barista friends there. Like I wouldn't see them at other coffee shops. I would see them at Ordinaire. I would see them at like breweries that like had really great and interesting beers, not IPAs, mostly lagers. Just also putting that out there. Um, <laughs> more fighting words. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that um, I think that baristas often get underestimated by how powerful their palates are. Um, as I, yeah. I want to test this. How do we test this? I, I don't mean, know. I don't know. What's like neutral ground between like a sommelier and like a uh, like. So our our equivalent would be like maybe a Q grader, but even that, that's much more specific to green coffee quality. But those are pretty powerful tasters too. I mean, could we even do like a, like a whole different medium? Like, can we do like cocktails or something? Or yeah, like, maybe you know, or like a or like a liquor or something. But sometimes the alcohol can be like too much. Even that's for, yeah, that like, might be mask. That could be, huh? Anyway, if if someone's listening to this and they have a challenge yeah. that they could set up for coffee people versus wine folks, like please send I would love it. That. I would love please that. send it my way. Or maybe I could do a coffee and you could do a wine. So that that might be that might be the challenge. But no, I do think that baristas are actually like secretly some of the best tasters that get underutilized, um, and that's like a kind of a hurdle that a lot of baristas face. I think a lot of baristas have this like romanticized idea of being bartenders, or at least that was like a right. very hot thing in like 2014. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of like a very, a very particular time in my barista life. Um, <laughs> but I would see a lot of my friends like not even get considered for these jobs because people didn't really understand how taxing it is to be a barista. Well, and I think about some restaurants have dedicated baristas, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, especially like on the upper echelon of the Michelin world, because I think they understand that. But I think much like, especially right now, many restaurants, everything is just sort of being consolidated. Right. Like the DM is now the wine director, which is now that, you know, it's just like people are wearing so many hats just for the sake of survival. Like, I don't think... <laughs> an in-house barista for restaurants it'll probably be relegated i mean i was making coffee drinks so you know being the server and wine director you know and i'm also pulling espresso shots and you know <laughs> making hearts and cups of coffee and people love that people never get sick of that people never right? get sick of hearts everyone just make hearts <laughs> <laughs> don't make anything else just make don't make hearts. anything else yeah <laughs> um i've i've that's another like hill i'll die on um but <laughs> but no funny. you're right like there's this like idea of servers having to do everything or like your server is the one that's supposed to have like this extensive wine knowledge too, which can be really taxing and overwhelming. I have to imagine. I mean, yes, it's not, you bring up a really great point where you're like, yes, you are a, you're more equivalent to a bartender than you are or a chef than you are a server because you can dial in all these things. So I mean, yes, I'm, I have to be a treasure trove of knowledge. And sometimes you get people coming in who will just know more than you, especially for some regions like Burgundy. Like I can't afford to drink Burgundy all the time. Like I'm mm -hmm. a wine director for a Michelin star restaurant and I don't even drink Burgundy all the time. You know, like some people are just gonna know more because they have the resources and the particular time to spend on that. So I'm not always going to know everything, but much like healthcare, much like right. you know, there's, there's specialties, right? Like there's fabulous Italian restaurants in Chicago. And if I signed up for that in an Italian restaurant to be a sommelier there, I would need a big learning curve. It's not necessarily my strong point. Um, so I think it totally just depends on where you work too. You're not always 
you're not always going to know everything and that's okay too. And just not (laughs) that that is not a time where you fake it till you make it because people can smell that a mile away and you just end up losing trust in people. Something that you mentioned in like some of the reels and the videos that you make is Mm -hmm. climate change and how that's affecting different wine regions. And that's something that we talk a lot about in coffee too. Like climate change is absolutely changing where you can grow coffee and how that coffee is being grown in particular regions. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what climate change is doing to wine growing. Oh, can I? I mean, I? I mean did I open a can of worms? Perhaps I did, but maybe we can, maybe we can give people just like a little bit of a taste because something that does happen just to give you another kind of like wine coffee comparison that a lot of coffee people make is that we do talk about elevation and temperature changes in coffee growing. So we talk a lot about like coffee grows between the top of the cancer of tropic of capricorn it wants right. to grow in hot humid places but it wants to grow at high elevation so that it can experience that shift in temperature it almost like stresses the beans out right. and i think that that's something we borrowed pretty much directly from wine as a way to talk about this <laughs> um just saying that there's certainly parallels and uh yes we can we can briefly touch on this i won't dive in too deep but i'm just going to take a point from my most recent experience which was i did a couple weeks of harvest of wine harvest in Napa, California. And I've never been, I kind of felt like a poser talking about Napa, but never actually being there. So I felt like this was a good time to not only see Napa, but to try making wine in the cellar, uh, which, you know, spoiler alert is really hard. <laughs> You're pretty much a farmer. Uh, you work consecutive 12 to 13 hour shifts. I was just like shocked. I like underestimated how much work it was going to be. And of course me, I'm like, well, I was a nurse, you know, like, well, I worked in restaurants, like I, I can handle this, but I just, these people work three weeks at a time, months at a time without a day off because the grapes don't take a day off, right? Right. But uh, California is, it's a big problem. Uh, There's two major factors happening with wine growing around there, which is water conservation and wildfires. I was asking people, because I'm like, this sounds like, like, what are you going to do? And people do clever things where... If they're growing red grapes, you can make rosé to reduce the amount of smoke taint in the wine, but you're kind of just putting a Band-Aid on, you know, on a gash, right? It's not actually helping. So I'd ask people, and every single person I talk to, they go, yeah, it's fucked up. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> like there's no, there's no real solution. There's things like water conservation where people recycle water within wineries. Um, I was shocked to also find out how much water it takes to make a bottle of wine. Um, I'm sure coffee is a very similar thing. Yeah. But um, at the end of the day, it seems like you're just not going to be able to make wine in California anymore. It's just too inclement. There's too many droughts. There's too many fires. There's not enough water. So we're just going to have to move or, you know, make crops that are more resistant to heat, which some people are doing. But in places like California, where it's getting exponentially worse every year, there's just, uh, it seems like there's not really going to be enough time for it. So is there anything that you want people to know about you listening to this or to think about when they're purchasing their next bottle of wine? Well, I'm just going to take this opportunity to do bump- my, to bump my stuff. So uh, again, my name is Marie Cheslick. I am the founder of Slick Wines. So if you are interested in fun, approachable wine education in tiny digestible video format, um, give us a follow on uh, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and even on Twitter. I'm on all of it, just seeing what's up. So I'd love to <laughs> meet you, interact with you. And when you are out buying a bottle of wine, 
I would say the most important thing would be buying from small wineries, buying from people who don't make a ton of wine, um, spending a little bit more on a bottle of wine, probably much like coffee, um, really goes a long way. I mean, on average, as a wine professional who doesn't drink fancy burgundy every day, I probably spend on average 25 to 35 on a dollars on a bottle of wine. So just that little bit can really go a long way for farmers, but I know people don't have the resources for it. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. But if you have the resources and you like buying organic produce or things from farmer markets or, you know, nice, uh, nice coffees, then buying nice wine is another way to expand that that way of being sort of environmentally conscious and labor conscious, which I feel is very important. And I think you do too, Ashley. I went to an event. It was a coffee event and we brought in Martha Stuman to talk about wine. And she's, she's this amazing wine producer. And one of the things that she was telling us was that like for her to be profitable, like the cheapest she can sell her wine is like 27 or $28. Yeah. Which I thought was super interesting because as you were saying, like that 25 to $35 range feels like when you, even when you said it, I was like, Oh, then I was like, Oh, <laughs> but then I was like, wait a minute. Like I feel, I feel the same way for coffee and I can make a whole argument for coffee that like you get more cups of coffee, blah, 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 whatever. But that's regardless, like the same, the thinking is still the same that like the prices don't come from like us trying to like market this as a luxury item. The prices come from like, this is like the bare minimum we can sell this for. Like this is a steal actually. And it's hard to, it's hard to convey that. It is because food is underpriced right now. Just know? in general, just I, always. It always 100%, has been. You know, and then uh, the people you hear from the most are restaurant owners, you know, saying like food costs are going up. But, you know, we go to the grocery store and we think now that $6 is too much for a dozen eggs. But it's like maybe it should have been $6 10 years ago, right? For it to be like livable for farmers or for livable for somebody. So. I don't know. It's that's a whole different conversation about like subsidies and like yeah. who, who deserves good food and why, you know, and governments will either do the thing that will benefit the economy the most, like subsidizing corn, um or or benefits the culture the most, which they do in the EU. So like you'll see more bespoke cheese dairy products or whatever their country is proud of, right? But here in, you know, the US of A, um we love corn. We love soy. Um, and people need to have cheap options. That needs to be a possibility for people. But if you have the resources to spend a little more money, I, uh, I encourage it. You know, I would like you to consider it at least. Thank you for taking time to chat with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. That was Marie Cheslick. You can find out more about Marie and the work that she's doing over at Slick Wines, slickwines.com, or you can type in Slick Wines on basically any social media platform, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, you name it, and see some of the educational content that she's making. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. 
and that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.